witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who had been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these um, to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were, with, those who were circumcised took issue with him saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze upon it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment three men appeared before the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, without misgivings, and these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the words of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall baptize be, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave th to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. If you would now please turn to the back of your bulletin, where we'll read together as a congregation Psalm 32. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you in upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to, into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen? Amen. Father, now we come to your word and we... Thank you that you speak to us, and we know that when we look into the Bible, you are talking to us. And uh, however man does, you've chosen this passage for this day to give us a message so that we might know you and love you and grow in you and be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we pray that you would do that. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. 
Let's see if I can get rid of this thing in my face. Ah. We come to uh, what is, for maybe most people, an easy passage. Not so for me. I find Galatians one of the most difficult books in the Bible. And I think I'm finally coming to grips with it. I, uh, when, I, when I read, I look at the footnotes, and the footnotes intrigue me. So, you know, when I read a book, then at least five more are on the way to my house. And then while I'm looking them up on Amazon to order them, of course, Amazon has its little intrigues, and so some more are coming. Amazon knows what they're doing. Anyway, in conjunction with Galatians, which I uh, started working on really about four years ago, working on again, I uh, came across two books that were quite helpful. One was written by a, a woman. What do you know, huh? <laughs> And uh, it, she's a professor at Oxford, and uh, quite scholarly, and it was called Roman Faith and Christian Faith, Pistis and Fide in the Early Roman Empire and in the Early Christian Church. Quite helpful on the words faith and justification. We know what we think about faith, and we know what we think about justification coming from the Reformation, which was in the 16th century, which means there were 15 centuries before that. And uh, in the 16th century, the Reformers, who have done us a great service by God's grace, found their opponent, their trouble to be with the Catholic Church, with the doctrine of purgatory, how does one know they're going to go to heaven, and uh, their different works of merit, penance, and so forth. And out of this uh, came uh, Calvin and Luther with the doctrine of justification by faith, although they don't think exactly the same. One thinks more in a legal sense, and one thinks more in a social sense. A second book I read was called Christianity Rediscovered. Uh, it was written by a man, and he was a missionary in East Africa. And he was giving a, excuse me, a missionary wrote about this man. He was a chief in East Africa. And he was giving, the chief was, a Christian, to his people, an illustration about faith. And he said, you know, when you say, I believe this or that, that is like shooting an animal at a long distance. Faith is like a lion who smells its prey, and his eyes spot it, 
and his ears perk up, and he jumps up, and his mighty legs are on the run and the prowl till he tracks it down and wraps his legs around it, and soon his prey has become part of him. That's faith. Then he turned around and said, well, that's the faithfulness of God. So I've uh, given you my translation of uh, this passage because I don't like what's in our versions of the Bible. Uh, not, not that they're exactly inaccurate. I don't mean that. I just don't think it's the best way to translate it. And I did notice uh, after Grace Xeroxed it, there's a mistake or two in it, but I think you can figure it out. Anyway, that might be helpful as we talk about Galatians. Galatians, well... Christ, there's there's controversy over chronology in the Bible. And a lot of people have worked very hard on it. And uh, so we have uh, two different dates for the crucifixion of Christ, the year. One is 30 A.D., excuse me, A.D. 30, and the other is A.D. 33. I go with the first one because I'm such an expert in chronology. Uh, so if you start at 30 A.D. 30, got to say it right, and we assume, which I think would be a fair assumption, that Paul became a believer later on that year, then from what we read in Galatians and we put together with the book of Acts, We know that Paul's first trip to Jerusalem to meet with Stephen, and he also met James, the brother of our Lord. That would have been in 33 A.D. And 14 years later, he went up to Jerusalem on a revelation about a famine. He was taking food. And that 14 years, the way they do their measuring is measured from 30 A.D., not from added to 33 A.D. So that would have been in 44 A.D., and that matches up exactly with Acts chapter 12 because we know the date of the incident that took place in Acts chapter 12. So uh, then Paul went on two missionary journeys, and controversy arose between Paul and the truth of the gospel, and between circumcised Jewish believers. And out of this, when Luther and Calvin and others looked at what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church, they saw the opponents in Galatians as precursor to the Roman Catholic Church. Well, what I'm about to tell you is not widely accepted yet, but it will be. You know, the thing is, if you read uh, Evidence Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, you realize that over time, we prove more and more in the Bible by archaeological digs and so forth, so we can prove it's accurate when people were before that were saying, well, that, that didn't even exist. 
And when it comes to uncovering uncials and papyri and scrolls and, and scripture written on pottery, as these digs go on and on, we learn more and more about the language. We have access today in our century to a lot of things that Calvin and Luther never had access to. And so, as is the case, because God is infinite and his word is infinite, we have to, the gospel will never change. But how to express it and what the words exactly mean need to be refined. So, we think of justification in a legal standing you're standing before the judge, and he pronounces a verdict. You're guilty, and then in comes a substitute who takes your place, and so you're declared righteous. That is not what's behind Galatians. That certainly is found in Romans. The problem in Galatians re revolves around who can be identified as people of God. And there's a controversy based on something more that we've learned in history. And what we've learned in history is there was an exemption in the Roman Empire given to Jews not to worship at the temple and all the festivals, all the gods, which was demanded of the whole empire. Julius Caesar figured, well, they will die... They'll go to the death for this, so let's do something. So they decided to give Jewish people an exemption with the command to pray for the Roman Empire. They gladly did that. Now come along Gentiles, and Gentiles are becoming believers in Israel's Messiah. Remember the word Christ? It's just the Greek translation of Messiah. It means the anointed one. Gentile people are becoming believers in Israel's Messiah. And now these people likewise do not want to worship the gods and go to the temples and participate in the festivals in the Roman Empire. And there are gods everywhere, temples everywhere. And your neighbors know exactly what you're doing because you don't have a backyard that's fenced. You're all right on the street. You're just living close. Everybody knows what everybody's up to. And so believers, Gentiles, claimed the Jewish exception, exemption, so that they would not have to worship. That caused a problem for Jewish believers, not to mention Jews who had not trusted Christ yet, because they felt like their exemption was at risk. And of course, the one thing we know about Israel and Jewishness is, well, number one, you can be a Jew without one drop of Jewish blood. 
You can be subsumed into Israel simply by getting circumcised. And then you're allowed to participate in Passover, which is the big historical event of redemption. And so Jews who believed in Jesus were demanding that Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus must be circumcised. Now, that, of course, erupted also into a theological controversy taken up in Acts where the circumcision was saying, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. But Galatians is right here in time. The Jerusalem Council is right over here in time. And Romans is out here in time. So the first and earliest book of the Bible is maybe Galatians. It might be James' epistle. It's either James or Galatians. I mean, that's one way to say it. Of course, I also believe, and this is, this is just a freebie, wasn't counted in the sermon. Matthew was written in the 30s. Mark was written in the 40s. Luke was written in the 50s, and John was written in the 60s with its compendium, the book of Revelation. Now, most people don't believe that, but that viewpoint is growing. So I'm on the growing side. It's always a good place to be. So when we come to Galatians then, we we need to think just a little bit differently than when we come to Romans. And yet the same words are used, faith and justification. Now, let me say something else, and, and this, ha this hasn't gained much ground, and I'm not exactly sure why. But uh, when we think about Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And we know that that is picked up in Romans and that is developed. That same Hebrew expression is found only one other time in the Old Testament. And it's found in Psalm 106. And it's found in the incident where Balaam was counseling Balak to get the pretty little Moabite girls to drag these uh, lusty Jewish boys to the sacrifices. And that's exactly what happened. And they went off, and as we've said before, in such sacrificial worship, often it included man and woman intimacy. And that's exactly what happened. And God became angry. And he began slaying people who were coming back from the Moabite camp, having worshipped other gods and participated in temple prostitution. And here comes a man back into the camp with a Moabite woman and goes into the tent. And Phineas goes in with a spear and shoves it through them, both engaged in lovemaking. And the plague 
was stayed. And in Psalm 106, it says, This jealousy of Phineas was counted to him as righteousness. But in the book of Numbers, it doesn't say that. This act of jealousy became for him a perpetual covenant. Well, now, when you go back to Genesis chapter 15 and you think about it, and I hope you all know Genesis 15. Abraham's worried about who's going to be his heir because God had made tremendous promises and he had no heir and he's getting old, older. And so he says to God one day, you know, Eliezer, my servant, he'll be my heir. And God said, no, your heir will come from Sarah. And he took him outside and he showed him the stars and the heavens. He said, if you can count those, you'll be able to count your descendants. Your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now, of course, the word righteousness in Hebrew and in Greek can be translated righteousness or can be translated justification. We do both. And immediately after that statement, God makes covenant with Abraham. So one man has, I'm, I'm sure there are others, I read it from one man, has said, look, we think of justification by faith only in this sense of this legal standing before a judge because Roman has that legal position. But if you go back to Abraham and if you go to Phineas, you discover, well, it has something to do with covenant. And covenant has something to do with relationship. We all know it from marriages. A man and a wife are not in covenant they come to a wedding before a minister, a gospel preacher, a servant of the Lord in the assembly, and they stand before him and they go through a little bit of ritual. And, uh, you know, and if you get married at McKinney Bible Church, about an hour long sermon. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then. You do vows, covenant vows, and you exchange rings usually. And then the man officiating says, because of the authority of God's word, I pronounce you man and wife. And boom, they're in covenant. Later on, they'll consummate the marriage. But the, now they're in a new relationship. And it's supposed to be a relationship like this. Friends, that is what Galatians is about. So in Galatians, we've already gone through chapter 1 and chapter 2 through verse 10. And we saw that in Paul's second trip to Jerusalem, Barnabas went with him and he brought along Titus. And uh, he got the men of repute together to share his gospel to the Gentiles for fear that he might be running or had run in vain. And then it says, and Titus was compelled to be circumcised. But we did not give way for one hour 
that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. And this came about because people sneaked in privily. And so it's not talking about the apostles doing this, but he's talking about some people who made their way to the meeting or came up to them afterwards and said, well, you know, Titus has to be circumcised. No. Then uh, we come to chapter 2, and we come to chapter 2, verse 11. And you might want to turn your Bibles there. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and to hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by hypocrisy. His traveling companion, his fellow missionary, they've been teaching for two Missionary journeys. Faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So we see what's going on. This word compel comes up three times. Chapter 2, verse 3, right here in chapter 2, uh, verse 14. And then one more time at the very end of the epistle in chapter 6, verse 12 where again Paul is saying there are these circumcised people compelling you Galatians to be circumcised. We see the problem in Galatia. We also know from chapter 4, these people, these Gentiles in Galatia were turning back to things like certain days, certain moons, certain years, certain festivals. And Paul says, are you becoming in in bondage, enslaved to the elemental principles all over again? And not only that, when Peter is eating with Gentiles and then he goes away and he will only eat with Jews, well, you can guess that what's on this table is kosher and what he'd been eating on this table was not kosher. And he felt free until he became afraid. That's where our verses begin. And that is the context. There is no court context here. There's no legal context here. What, what Teresa Morgan points out in her book is that pistis, which is the Greek word for faith, 
can be used to speak about belief of certain facts. We certainly see that in the Bible. But in the culture of the day, it was a word that had to do with relationships and was used in the sense of being faithful. And justification, which can be in a legal context, but it means right, it too is used in the setting up of associations and one word is the foundation of the other, and sometimes you turn around, the other word's the foundation of the other ones. And it's talking about tightly knit groups that are faithful to one another in a social setting, like a family. That's what Galatians is about. If you want to talk about a judge, and you're on trial before him, and he, because of your substitute, declares you guilt-free, righteous, then you must turn to Romans, but not to Galatians. Galatians has this whole vast new idea for us and it is a corrective of a problem that we definitely have in evangelicalism today. And that problem has to do a bit with how we present the gospel. What we say is not wrong, but the impression that is left and what has swept across the church in our country is a simple idea, that is, Okay, if you want to know you're going to heaven for sure, you trust what Jesus did for you on the cross, and boom, you're saved, and there's no work involved. So, brother, you're on your way to heaven. And by the way, you can't lose this salvation either. You're good. Now, that's a bit of a caricature. You know that. But I cannot tell you how many, how many young people who have gone through this church whom we have sat down and talked to them about Christ and salvation and they say they trust and we ask them certain questions and they answer them correctly and we put them in the tub and baptize them who today will tell you, yes, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to heaven and they're living like hell. They're not faithful. They have no sense of kinship with the church, no sense of kinship with Jesus Christ, no sense of faithfulness at all. What they know is, hey, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he took them away, and when I die, I'll be in heaven. And if I were talking to one of them, I would say, no, when you die, you will be in hell. And that's what Galatians is about. Faithfulness faithfulness like a lion on the hunt for his prey and consumes and it becomes part of him jesus on the hunt for his people and he consumes us and we become part of him and so we're bound up with him and we're faithful to him that's what drives us that's what paul's talking about all right now with that big long introduction the place i want to be Chapter 2, verse 15. 
We are Jews by nature. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard, not, not from the translation that I gave you. We are Jews by nature. That, that means by birth. And not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, look, there are two different groups. If you're a Jew, God is your father. How do we know? Genesis tells us. You circumcise that boy in the eighth day, and God says, I'll be his God, and he will be my son. God is his father. So Jews are thinking, we're the chosen people. God's our father. We're his people. So we're Jews by nature. We're the praisers of God by nature. But when it comes to Gentiles who are outside of this covenant and outside of this law, well, they're sinners. We're Jews by birth and not sinner from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through, and here we have the expression, faith in Christ Jesus. It is to be translated the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. You have different ways of writing these Greek words, and yes, grammatically, it can be translated faith in Christ Jesus, but the emphasis is on the faithfulness of Christ, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, and the works that we're thinking about in Galatians now is, it was not the common Jew that thought, you know, I can do, 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 and I'll be right with God. That's not how Jews saw it. They had law. They knew good and well they still lied. They knew all of that. They had the sacrifices to take care of that. But in this context, we're talking about what marks someone out as family. Three things mark somebody out as Jewish family. Circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, kosher eating. Those are the strictly Jewish things. So Jews automatically think, well, if you're a Gentile sinner and you're going to come to faith, then you have to add these things to your life. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, our Messiah Jesus. And Peter, even we have believed, and the word, the word is not into, not in, it's into. We have believed into Messiah Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Jesus and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, just look at that last expression. I put on your sheet that that's a, a take from uh, uh, Psalm 143. But in Psalm 143, it doesn't say flesh. It says living, any living person. No living person can be justified by works no living person is righteous in your sight and paul chooses a different word flesh well of course it makes a lot of sense doesn't it because the issue is circumcision it's the flesh that's the issue so let me read verse 16 again it is it is just jam-packed 
Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of law, but through the faithfulness, but through the faithfulness, faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed into Christ. That's the only faith there that is, is actually of what we do. We have believed into Christ Jesus that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So what is Paul saying? Paul is not denying the cross. After all, he's going to say God, gave him, God loved us and gave himself for us, just like he started out the epistle right up at the beginning talking about Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that we might be delivered out of this present evil age. He gave himself. Of course, that's talking about the cross, and we know that he died for our sins. He took our penalty on the cross. Paul is not denying any of that, but he's concerned about can these two people sit together at a table? Now, verse 17 is a somewhat summarization of 15 and 16. So he says, But if while seeking to be justified in Messiah, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Messiah then a minister of sin? May it never be. What in the world is he talking about? Well, here's what he's talking about. Okay, Peter, we have trusted in Christ. We trust in Christ. And in trusting in Christ, just like you, Peter, I too eat with these former idolaters who don't eat kosher food and are uncircumcised. All things that the law said, okay, this is the way it has to be. Now we, now we, Peter, we look like we're lawbreakers. Does that mean Christ is the minister of sin? Because in coming to Christ in faith, he has said, no, you don't need to be circumcised. No, you don't need to eat kosher food. No, you don't need to keep certain days. We look like lawbreakers. Does that mean Jesus is a minister of sin? May it never be. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay, so this is the idea of Peter. He's over here. He's, he's, he's broken down the law. God's broken down the law. The law had a sell-by-date time, and it came to an end at the cross. Not, don't take that the wrong way. Not totally, obviously. We still believe the commandments out of the Old Testament, but these little factors that divided Jews from the rest of the world, no, it came to an end right at the cross. So when you go sit down as a Jew and you eat with a Gentile, it looks like you're tearing down the, the law, the wall, which is exactly what Ephesians 2 did. Here came Jesus, and he made the two groups into one by tearing down the wall of enmity. He destroyed it. Okay, Peter, that's what we have done. But now, Peter, look at you. 
You were eating with Gentiles over here, but then you put that wall back up when the Jewish circumcision came because you were afraid of them. If you, if you rebuild what you once tore down, now you've become a transgressor. Well, now what's the difference? Gentiles are sinners. Classified as sinners. What? They have no law. They're messing up all the time. They don't know what's right and wrong. They're missing the mark. That's what sin is, missing the mark. But transgression is an act of knowledge, an act of knowledge. I know what God said, and I'm going to do otherwise. Now, Peter, you've reconstructed this wall, and now it proves that you're a transgressor. Now, the key in understanding this is that the law of the Old Testament, and everybody in this room ought to know this, was only temporary. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll discover it. It was only a testimony to the good things to come. The old covenant is put away and a new one's coming, so the old has become obsolete. That's what Paul's talking about. For if I rebuild if I, uh, let me look at that again. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. Now, how is it? That, that, that's just one of those mind-boggling statements. How through the law do you die to the law? When you have the law, you're supposed to keep the law. Through the law, I died to the law. Well, we don't have time to do this, and I'm assuming you know some of this, but when you read Deuteronomy, particularly chapters 29, 30, and 31, you discover the law had an intentional end. And that's how Paul died to the law. He's not under law anymore. Now, that doesn't mean he can break the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about that. He's looking at certain aspects of the law, what here he calls the works of the law, and those aspects he's looking at are things like circumcision, things like eating with filthy Gentiles, things like saying, you know, you've got to keep the Passover, you've got to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, all those kinds. No, that's all over. Through the law, I died to the law because the law said this is going to come to an end, that I might live to God. I have become crucified with Christ. And if you look at my translation, you see it's a little different, and there's, there, there's, there's justification for both translations. I have been crucified with Christ, but I live. Why? Christ was crucified and he rose from the dead. But the life I now live, I no longer, the life I now live in the flesh, uh, let me start over, for, uh, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live, in, I live in the flesh, I live through the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, notice, bookends. We go all the way back to chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Here we are at the end. Who loved me and gave himself for me. We have an inclusio. The book ends. We, we are at the end of a section that's all fit together. And the key is not a law court. The key is not the idea of being made perfect by Christ's death. That may all be in the background. That's just not the point here. The point here is who belongs in the family. Now, that has huge ramifications for the church around the world. Huge ramifications as we have been saying. Now, who is saved? Well, we know who's saved. Somebody who has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does he have to understand the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith? If he has to understand it, there are a lot of people who say they trust Jesus who aren't saved. Of course you don't have to understand that. What you have to do is trust Christ. He died for my sins. My sins are taken away. You don't have to know the mechanism of how that takes place. The issue is, do I trust Christ? So Paul is saying, okay, this whole group, Jews who are circumcised and Gentiles who who are not circumcised, have become one community of believers through the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We can sit down at table and eat together. And so I can go sit down at a table with a person who trusts Christ who hardly knows anything about the Bible. I can sit down with a person who trusts Christ, who has a lot of Bible doctrine just flat wrong. I've traveled in India. I've gone to little villages with their mud huts, simple people, people who love to sing songs with the missionaries, clearly were happy said they trust Christ. Do they know much? Will they ever know much? The answer is no, they won't. But their family, their family. It's like having a big family and you got people around the table and some are older, some are younger, some are smarter, some aren't quite as smart, but they're all family and they are faithful because they have faithful parents. We Likewise, are faithful because Christ has drawn us in with his faithfulness and now we are replicating that faithfulness who loved us and gave himself for us. I do not nullify the grace of God. Here's the summation. I do not nullify the grace of God. What does he mean? He means if I don't accept this, then there's no grace. I don't nullify the grace of God for the righteousness comes, if righteousness comes through the law, then Messiah died needlessly.
Of course it was needed. We're all sinners. But he died. And this is a point, not everywhere in the Bible, but in a lot of places, to make the Christian community one and the Christian community around the world is just a big fractured mess where we fight with each other. And we, we write people off because they believe the wrong doctrine. And Paul's saying, you have no business doing that. If somebody doesn't agree with you on everything, they're growing in Christ. They may come to agree, but that's not the issue. The issue is, if Christ died for them and he was faithful to them and they trust Christ, now can they sit at your table and will you accept them or will you be the pointed finger at them all the time? That's what the circumcised Jews were saying. No, you're getting in our way. And we'll see how that turns out at the end of the epistle that uncircumcised Gentile believers were a threat to Jewish circumcised believers because Rome might throw away the exemption and then persecution comes. This is a wonderful, wonderful passage. I, I know I haven't done that well with it, but Christ is faithful. That's the point. And all those he's faithful to, they all belong together in one family. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who came down from heaven for our salvation to make us into his family, our brother with one father and one spirit that animates all of us even though we're at different stages in what we understand, what we know, what we even hold to be true. One thing we do know, Christ gave himself to deliver us out of this present evil age. And we thank you for that. In his blessed name, amen.